Mighty most deaf. It's simple mathematics. Check it out. I'll revolve around science. What are we talking about here? What's up, Duke Nation? Welcome back to Duke by the Numbers. I'm your host, Russell, a.k.a. Duke Better on Twitter. And man, we have got a very fun show for you today. Uh, (laughs) This will be our first show with a guest, uh, a very illustrious guest here, uh, I should say. Um, As everybody knows who is listening to the show uh, for the second time, third time, fourth time, Uh, We talk about stats. We talk about numbers. We talk about team records. We try to understand the game of basketball uh, on a level just beyond what our eyes can see. And sometimes stats are confusing. Sometimes when people mention numbers, they're confusing. So we try to contextualize a lot of these things. And I thought there was very few people in the world better at doing these sorts of things than the man I'm about to introduce. He is one of the three-man weave. He is the co-host of Fielding the 68 on the Field of 68 Network, among other things. And uh, he's a hell of a guy to be in Vegas with, Jim Root. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Russell. I I was a little surprised that you asked me because one member of the Weave is a Duke fan. And so I I, I wondered if maybe that was part of it to try to get a little more of an outsider perspective. 100%. So for those of you who don't listen to the three-man weave, first of all, what are you doing? You absolutely should. You probably would understand a lot of the things that we talk about on the show already if you'd been listening to the weave, but it's not too late to pick it up. Uh, Jim is, would it be fair to call you a Duke hater? Yeah, kind of. I think maybe my my beef at this point is probably a little more with Coach K than it is with Duke in general. Sure. You're you're somebody who is not a big fan of K. You're certainly not a big fan of a lot of the things that come with the uh, evil empire that is Duke. Sure. Yeah. So I thought that it would be very good to have somebody like you on the show. Because certainly with March coming up and my mentions are filled with questions about obviously the upcoming bracket and March and what have you, uh, it'd be very easy for me to get a Duke person on here who could just say, ah, we can beat everybody. Oh, we deserve a one seed. Definitely. Oh, you know, like all these things. Or I could also get the other sort of Duke fan, which is we're definitely getting a four seed. We're out in the first weekend. You know, the, the, the two the two brands of college basketball fan that you tend to encounter on Twitter. So uh, I thought that you would be nicely in the middle where you definitely are not somebody with any sort of allegiance to Duke. You understand the numbers. You're a bracketologist. Uh, and you, uh, your show certainly has taught me a number of things over the years. So, uh, I really wanted to dive into some of these things with you and get some, uh, get some outside perspective here. Yeah. I'm ready to rock. It should be noted. I'm not like a Carolina fan or anything. It's not a, no, no, I no. hate Duke bristling with rivalry. I just, I like that there is a villain in college basketball sure. and it has kind of become Duke. So it's, it's like a love hate thing. I like that they exist. Sure. I also feel like of the weave, maybe Kai is the one, at least on Twitter, who's been a lot more vocally uh, anti-Duke this year. Yeah, Kai, 
Kai's Twitter takes are heavily fueled by what current wager he has writing at that moment. <laughs> so, he always seems so grumpy. He's not a grumpy guy in real life. He's, he's no. a sweetheart, but I, he only takes the Twitter when he has. It's like uh, it's, it's a, a, a lot of reviews online for places are bad because you're only inspired to go review it if you're angry. Yes. <laughs> Kai is the Yelp of uh, college basketball yes. handicapping. That's great. Yes. Um, so, yeah, you are, as I said, a bracketologist. You also are uh, a handicapper, uh, a gambler. Uh, you know, you certainly frame on your show a lot of games in terms of the spread, uh, you know, and you talk about Kim Pom a lot, Bart Torvik a lot. I wanted to just start by asking, because of the nature of why I started the show in the first place, what stats do you find that the average basketball fans, like, understand the least uh, or, or maybe express the most skepticism about in your experience? I think there's there's two and one's more general one. The general sense, I think there's a skepticism around predictive versus resume based rankings. And that that basically means a system like Ken Palm or another website like Bart Torvik. These are predictive. They are trying to capture every possession that a team has played in order to predict how that team will will play in the next game or next series of games. Whereas something like the AP poll or uh, even some just like resume type things and the way people think, really, I think your, your, your gut instinct when looking at a team is who have they beaten, who have they lost to. And it doesn't factor in margin. And there's value to both. I think they're both important. But I think when you start getting into predictive, that's when certain people are just like, I don't care that they won by two and lost by 20. They're one and one. Right. But predictively if they won by two and lost by 20 that's not very good they're negative 18 so i think and it's starting to get there people are are starting to take a hold of it more and more with some of the efficiency and predictive stuff but that's it's probably not quite there yet i wonder if the word predictive is one of the things that throws people off because then it sounds like oh it's like a crystal ball and it's, it's some future you know ethereal thing rather than just a, a tangible measure of team strength. Like I, I try to talk a lot about <laughs> on this, just like using the phrase, like the strength of a team or the efficiency of a team, because yeah, the second you say the word predictive or model or like anything like that, then it just sounds like, you know, some computer in a room somewhere, not, a, I mean, I mean, I guess it is a computer in a room somewhere, but, but it's also something uh, measuring uh, to your point that the results of an individual game are not the thing that measure team strength or team efficiency primarily. And, and I think people like to, when, it, when it's, when there's a predictive ranking that they disagree with, and this isn't just sports. Like I'm, I, I know that Nate Silver deals with this in like politics sure. and stuff. When you project something at any, any level of certainty and it's wrong, people like to dunk on it and say like you, you were an idiot. Like you said, this thing had a 73% chance of happening. It didn't, your model right. is stupid, but if there's only one event to go off of, then that's kind of results-based stuff, but I'm, I'm probably getting a little too into the weeds there, but yeah, like predictive, no, I, I can see I how think, it, yeah, yeah it can to, rub people to, the wrong way because they expect it to be right. And it's not going to be most of the time or all totally. the time. And, and that also just talks to the tenor of like conversation on Twitter in the first place, right? You know, uh, your take has to be big and bold and correct. I think that Ken Pomeroy in particular does a really good job of talking publicly about, hey, sometimes I feel differently than my model. Like I would have a team ranked ahead of where my model has it ranked. Models aren't perfect. 
they represent a range of outcomes, you know, uh, a lot of variance there. I think that where some other people who run predictive services, uh, as you mentioned before, get into trouble is when they uh, sort of engage on Twitter, maybe a little too much uh, on defense. Uh, I think that that, <laughs> that can be an issue. Uh, yeah. And it also, it strikes me as crazy. And I guess I'll talk about this again later as it pertains to particularly Duke. A lot of the pushback that you get or that I've been getting about Duke's resume this year is like, oh, we beat Gonzaga, we beat Kentucky, right? There's a lot of emphasis on that. And those are both phenomenal wins. Probably what, like top 10, both of them top 10 wins this year, something like this. I mean, pretty high. Yeah, both yeah. on a neutral court too. Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. Very, very high. So people say, well, I mean, like, doesn't, doesn't that mean anything like in terms of like, oh, people just want to put Kentucky ahead of Duke when we beat Kentucky? It's like, yeah, but let's let's flip that coin the other direction. Is Ohio State better than Duke? Right now. Now that one was at Ohio State, but they won by five. Uh, you know, would we even say that Ohio State is as good as Duke? Like most Duke fans, I think, would say no but they would say yes when it's when it's on the side of winning. Or if you're the big skeptic Duke fan, then obviously the Ohio State uh, game is an example of, oh, we can't even beat uh, Miami or Virginia, so obviously we're going to lose. Uh, when again, all the, all the truth tends to exhibit itself in the middle there. Um, I certainly encounter Ken Palm skepticism a lot, and something I've talked about a lot the last couple of shows I've done is the luck metric. I, I, of, I wanted to bring this up for sure. Yeah, which uh, talks to exactly what we're discussing here. You know, people struggle with that idea of, uh, oh, there's luck involved in winning close games because there's a narrative of winning close games means that the team is clutch or losing close, close games means that they are choke artists. And I think you talked about this maybe literally your last episode or the one before as it pertains to Providence, where Ed Cooley does have a very good record for Providence over a very wide sample size in terms of close games. So yes, they are probably good in close games, but that also doesn't mean in a small sample in particular, as it pertains to the NCAA tournament, that we can believe that they'll win, you know, a hundred percent of their close games or whatever they've won so far this year. Yep. The, the luck thing too, I think is because it's labeled as such on yep. Ken Palm, because it literally says luck and has a number. Like the idea that you can measure luck is, is silly. Like it's not a sure. winning a lottery or like a rabbit's foot. Like that, what that stat is really saying is wins above expectation based on underlying scoring margin it is in itself a number i kind of wish he didn't have it called luck because <laughs> i think it just creates such a perception of like oh that team just has eight horseshoes and they're just kind of like cartwheeling through the end of games and somehow it falls into their laps but it, because there is like in close games there is some element of being poised and executing and making the right play forcing opponents to take bad shots i think providence is a great example of that but you mentioned Cooley having a good record in close games through his career. It's like 60% instead of a coin flip. Like that's the degree of good he is. And this year's team is like 94%. Like yeah. 94 is an outlier. A coach can maybe get to 60 over a wide sample, but I'd say it, a coach that can win 60% of close games is an incredibly good coach. I mean, yes, that's, yes. That's, that's insane. If you could win 60% of your gambling bets, 
you'd be living in a goddamn mansion, you know? Yeah, I don't know if I would take time to talk to you if I had 60% winnings. I'd, <laughs> I'd be, be big time. To, yeah, big exactly. Yeah, totally. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't mind that it's called, I, I think that, I think that people need to stop being so resistant to the idea that just sometimes the bounce of the ball <laughs> changes the game. It just does. We've all seen our favorite teams. I mean, like not to, not to rub some salt in a wound here about one of your beloved teams, Wisconsin, but if that ball, if justice Winslow's finger in 2015 is like a millimeter different from where it was and the call changes that might change the entire outcome of the game. I mean, like, it's hard to call that anything other than luck in terms of, you know, yes, we believe that a player can be very poised and, and players are poised. Players do uh, tend to deliver in close games. Certain guys have that reputation, but, but they're not controlling the millimeters of their reach. They're not, you know, like yeah, those, I... those shots that rim out, there's only so much that they can do there. It can be a good shot that just bounces weirdly sometimes. Right. My favorite, NBA team is the Milwaukee Bucks. They won a title. It was awesome. People have said they're a little, they were lucky to do it. And in some parts they were Kevin Durant's toe being on the three point line in a possible sure. clinching game winning shot of game <laughs> seven was luck. I thought it was a three. I thought the game was over. I was despondent. And then I found out that his toe was on the line. That was luck. I, th- yeah. They were lucky to have made it to overtime and end up winning it doesn't like discount a team. They still want a title. Like to say Providence has been lucky. They still won the Big East title. Like no one's right. taking that away from you just because uh, someone in the, in the media myself or, or otherwise says you're lucky. It doesn't take anything away from but you. you. Yeah. But you also are lucky. Like, like you can, you can be very good and deserving and also lucky. Like I would argue any team that has won the NCAA tournament has been lucky in the NCAA tournament. Cause like, what, what are the, what are the best possible odds of any team at the beginning of the tournament to win the tournament? It's probably, it's like what, like in the 30 percentish range, like 30 yeah. to 40%. So like you are worse than a coin flip, even if you are the favorite to win the NCAA tournament, like you, you, you will have to have things go your way. And I think destigmatizing this idea that, you know, sometimes, man, the ball just bounced a little higher than the guy jumped. And yeah, and, like, and that's what it is. If, if Gordon Hayward's half court heave is two inches to the side and goes in, that's bad luck. You admit a guy made a half quarter to beat you in a national title game, but it didn't yeah. go in. You don't have to worry about it. Like that wouldn't that's have made Duke luck. any worse that year. Correct. Yeah. That just yeah. a shot would have gone in that was crazy. Like, so it that's that's what it comes down to. I think there's another on Ken Palm, the idea, and, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but free throw defense and like yeah. three pointer defense uh, to a little less of an extent. You know, there's this concept that's talked about where you can see how other teams shoot free throws against you. And if you are one of, as Duke actually is, I believe, if you are one of the teams that your opponent tends to shoot below their average from the free throw line. That's not anything you're doing. (laughs) That's and, and, you know, same with three pointers. Yes. You can defend well from the three point line. I think Duke does a really good job of running teams off the line and we have a lot of length, but there are also just sometimes games where the other team drains all their threes and there's nothing you can do about it. And there are games where they get wide open shots 
and they just clank them off the rim, you know, and that doesn't mean that, you know, they're bad just because a 45% shooter missed a wide open three. Sometimes just shit happens. <laughs> right. And that, and that leads to some expectation that eventually it will regress back to a mean, like I'm looking at Correct. it now, Duke, Duke's opponents are making 66% of their free throws this year. It's the 10th lowest number in the entire country. Yeah. It's not crazy to suggest that maybe in the next few games, opponents would shoot like 75 to 80%. And suddenly that number's back up to 69 for the year or whatever. Like yeah. that doesn't make you worse at suddenly defending free throws that because that number is so, so luck dependent. Correct. And now I think as it, as I can like hear the people on my Twitter feed getting mad at me, like you, again, you can defend the three pointer. I think that, especially if you look at how often you let other teams shoot threes, like Duke, uh, as I recall, is top 50 or very close to it in running teams off the three-point line and defensive three-point rate. So clearly defending the three is a priority. Like they're, they're getting in people's faces. But if you see a team where they don't, where opponents are shooting 30% from three against them or whatever, but they're also taking a very high rate of three-pointers, that's probably a lot more luck there. Yeah, it's like... It's- very few teams can year over year keep that stat low, like opponents yeah. three point percentage. Duke is actually one of the few They're that easily has one of the best. Yeah. And it's it's because of certain things that are emphasized with like closeouts and effort and having length and athleticism. Correct. Like it's it, you'd be hard pressed to find an Ivy League team with their athleticism <laughs> that can consistently have yeah. a great defensive three point percentage because they're it's they're not going to make you as uncomfortable. They're not going to challenge threes in the same way. So it's it is a very difficult stat to control. Yeah, future Duke coach Tommy Amaker, not a right. <laughs> oh, oh god, boy. that story. The uh, we're not going to unpack that one today. The uh, I just out of curiosity. Now this is this is interesting, and I hadn't thought about it until we were recording. Uh, obviously Duke's free throw defense, so to speak, the percent that teams shoot free throw, uh, the percent that teams make free throws against Duke is very, very low, but Duke also does not allow teams to shoot a lot of free throws. We do not commit a lot of shooting fouls on the year. I think we're top two in the country, top three, um, in terms of just like not giving up, uh, free throws. I wonder if over time there's any correlation to that, the idea that if just teams don't get to the line a lot, that maybe they are more likely to not shoot as well. I, I, I don't yeah, even, I, I don't know if that's true. I have one other hypothesis with it too. Um, I, I think there maybe is a little bit to, to your, to your argument of like, they're just not comfortable. They're not like they're there so rarely that they're not getting in a rhythm. I also think that because Duke is winning a lot, there's not a lot of late game fouling where you're mm, likely fouling the other team's best one or two free throw shooters where they're focusing on getting that guy, the ball, he catches it. He makes four out of four to end the game. Boom. There's, there's a hundred percent. Duke's just not losing close games very frequently. So that's, that's maybe a small part of it too. Yeah. I, uh, to contextualize for you, Jim, I brought up luck originally on the show after the Miami loss. Um, because there were all, all the Duke fans obviously were like, well, Miami's the best in the ACC right now. They're top 25 there, whatever. And I was like, Miami's like top 50 in luck, or they were at the time, maybe even top 25 in luck at the time. I was like, they're not, if they're a tournament team, they're a bubble team, dude. Like they're like, it's a bad loss at home. And everyone was like, nah, you're crazy. You're crazy. And sure enough, we've seen (laughs) using the phrase you said before regression, 
if you're winning a lot of close games, odds are you'll start losing those close games. We've seen them lose. I mean, didn't they lose an absolute ridiculous one against Virginia Tech? Wasn't that them this yeah, weekend? Just just a crazy comeback. Yeah, Virginia or Miami's seven and six since that Duke game. Like they've yeah. they've come back from that thirteen and two record that they were at. Yeah, which again, if if you're using Ken Palm and you're looking at the metric of how do teams perform in close games, I think it can definitely help you contextualize and and appreciate how how well they have played in close games but also give you a sense of how actually strong the team is um what stats do you think to move on from this but not too far from this what stats do you think would help fans understand college basketball best like and and the flip side of that coin is what parts of the general media conversation do we think are least valuable uh, in terms of helping fans actually understand the sport of college basketball so there's two i think Per game stats are getting phased out a little bit because they're misleading and efficiency stats should replace them. And I think that actually is happening. Like I think people are starting to at least figure it out a little bit. And and a lot of um, TV coverage has started to give more efficiency stuff rather than per game because raw per game, just it can be misleading. You can give up 60 points a game and be a terrible defense like it's possible depending if you're playing slowly like per possession stuff matters yeah so clarify what you what you mean i know i know you mean it's in terms of you know possession uh, adjusted for you know the tempo of the game but but explain a little more why per game stats might be more misleading than efficiency based stats yeah because like a game can have a different number of possessions like if you give up 65 points and the other team had 60 possessions that's not great. That's over one point per possession. If you give up 65 points on 70 possessions, so the other team had the ball 70 times, only managed to score 65 points. That's a lot better. You're going to have a lot more of a chance to win because you've also had the ball 70 times in that scenario or 65, and you probably have been able to score more. So giving up the same amount on different possessions really changes how, how you should look at that. I think last year's Alabama team was such a great example of it because there's some narrative that, oh, this team gives up 75 points a game. They can't defend. And then you'd look at Ken Palm and they were top three because they were playing right. 80 possession games and teams were sure is great. They scored 75 points, but that per possession matters because it projects better. Like you don't have to know how fast the game is going to go. You don't have to know tempo. You can just look at, all right, per possession, what are they doing? And that's easier to make a projection off of. And the, and the same goes for Virginia, you know, on the opposite end of that spectrum where they play like fewer than like 60 possessions a game, I would bet. And so basically none of the teams that beat them are going to be scoring more than like 65 points, you know, maybe 70s now and again. And so there's this perception that, oh, Virginia is a really good defense. But this year, I mean, they're eighth in the ACC. I mean, this is for Tony Bennett. I mean, I'd be surprised if this is not his worst or at least his worst since kind of the dregs of his early career. This um, is his worst efficiency-wise. It's his worst ranked defense in the history of his time at Virginia. Great. So there you go. So, yeah, uh, I agree. I think that the counting numbers uh, do sometimes get in the way of the understanding. Same for, like, uh, efficiency of a player scoring. Right, field goal like percentage. A, I, this yeah. is the other one I was going to say. Yes. Like in the in the preseason, I had somebody yell at me that somebody was a great shooter because they shot 51%. I was like, well, they took zero threes and almost none of their shots were jump shots. Like if you're dunking the ball, 
and you're making 54%, that's A, a low amount of dunks made, and B, tells you nothing about (laughs) actual shooting, jump shooting, taking shots from 15 to 25 feet away from the basket. So if that field goal percentage, when I think is, is tough to, to rely on. I, I think I saw in the NBA, somebody was doing the Russell Westbrook has a higher field goal percentage than Steph Curry. And like, that is the ultimate twisting sure. of a stat where it's like, well, Steph's taking a ton more threes and he's right. making a ton more threes. So there there's detail and nuance that goes into that, that, that gets lost in just a general field goal percentage. Do you like that uh, the EFG more? What isn't that like effective field goal percentage? I think it, yeah, I it, something like that. That that and true shooting percentage, I feel like get kind of a tug of war in uh, analytic circles. But basically, they weight three point percentage or they weight three point shots. So if you're shooting forty percent from three, that's better than shooting fifty percent from two because you're getting forty. That's one point two points per shot because forty percent times three. But if you're shooting 50% from two, that's only one point per shot. So weighting three pointers like that matters. I think it's important. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I, I've liked on your show, one of the things that I think your show, Three Man Weave, shameless plug. Always uh, be plugging, baby. I love it. ABP, always be <laughs> plugging. Um, I, I really like that you look at the Vegas spreads specifically um, rather than just saying when you're doing your game breakdowns, well, who's going to win this game? I think that looking at the Vegas spreads and and people, I'm sure you get this, but like people, when I talk about against the spread in terms of, uh, you know, what we should expect a game to be like, a lot of them will be like, oh, well, like Vegas, like the the money coming in influences it, you know, and that moves the line some, which like fair enough, but like not so much that you should discount the idea that the spread is more meaningful than just saying who won and who lost. I think looking at the Vegas spreads is good in terms of, for instance, realizing the value of road games versus neutral games versus home games and, you know, how much you should be expected to win at home versus winning on the road and what have you. Uh, And it'll also help you realize when games are really upsets and what aren't like, this is something that drives me crazy about the AP poll and crazy about the idea that just like, they'll put the rankings up on the screen and leave it at that. Like, if I recall correctly, I mean, Arkansas was favored over Kentucky this weekend, were they not? Yeah, and, but, Tennessee, but, and Tennessee was favored over uh, uh, over Auburn. So yeah, neither these, of those were. These are not upsets. These are games that, you know, the majority of the time, Kentucky or Auburn would be expected to lose. And yet it's framed as, oh, this is this like crazy day. So especially when we start talking about the resumes of teams later, like a lot of people were in my mentions not understanding yeah, but all these teams in front of us lost. So they should be moved down and we should be moved up. It's like, yeah, but that's not the same thing. Like losing to a team that is better than you in a a hostile road environment is not something that should really punish a team in, in a large, meaningful way, maybe to some degree, certainly, but not, not in the way that I think people expect. I also hilariously, while this is going on, I have people angrily texting me in my like Duke uh, group text saying, if we went out, there is a 99.99999% chance we are a one seed. Oh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk yeah, about that. Well, I, I know we're, we're going to get to that, but, but, uh, but for yeah. instance, like if Duke played at Gonzaga tomorrow and lost by two, that's a good result. Like 
just because you lost, like you're outperforming expectation, probably based on the spread and you're, you're losing on the road at a better team. That's a game. You probably have like a 35% chance of winning. So yeah, that, that kind of context matters too. And sometimes this data gets in the hands of the wrong people. Like some people just want to know resume, like AP voters are basically, what have you done? Like they're not really predicting what's going to happen in a future game. They're also not uh, even what have you done? They're what have you done lately? Yes, great point. <laughs> great point. There's a lot of recency bias in that. Uh, if you, it's like that. That's that's kind of a tug of war in in ranking. Is you don't have to drop if you lose, and you don't have to rise if you win, based on who you beat, who you lost to. Like the context of of the opponent and stuff matters too. Yeah, I, I there's. There's something that, uh, again, you've talked about on your show, this idea of program consistency over time, the idea that, uh, you know, there's a, a general range of expected outcomes for a team, and you can get a good idea of what that range is over a very large sample, but any sort of small sample I, is not going to be especially meaningful at the end of the day. Maybe it, maybe it moves the range of outcomes incrementally. Uh, but I, I wanted to ask, I didn't put this on the outline, but I wanted to ask a little bit about this, that you've got like power rankings essentially for gambling for, for all of the teams in the NCAA, correct? Yes. Yeah. Everybody's got a rating like from the way we do it. It's like 60 to 100 and it's used to try to determine what the Vegas line will be, what my line is versus the Vegas line. Uh, trying to see if I think I have value like if, if, if I'm significantly different from what the, the actual bettable line is, then theoretically I would have some value. That's the, that's the plan. At least that's the yeah, goal. That's, of those. that's the goal. And so what is it, what are the things that make you bump up or bump teams down on your, uh, on your personal rankings? Yeah. I think a lot of it is what we're discussing here. Like if a team loses, but they make 10% of their threes and the other team made 60% and it was still a close game. Like, I think that's a pretty good performance. Like it, it trying to determine whether an outcome is misleading is really important. Uh, final score is important, but it's not the end all be all. How did that final score happen? What was, what was the biggest reason for it? Uh, we, the adjustments are incremental, but we're trying to make them, based on what actually should have happened in a game versus what did happen, which is, I know, a, like a kind of a strange and almost illogical concept, but I think it's for that it's, it's important because the people making those spreads are using what happened, what actually happened. Right. And, and there's, you know, uh, I think a lot of when you talk about on a game by game basis, things that you're choosing, you talk about spots a lot on your show, like the spot of after a big emotional win a team is less seems to be less likely to play as strongly, or if a team really, really needs a win, otherwise their chances of achieving something are completely blown. Then sometimes they, they tend to get up for a game like that a little more. Uh, yeah. You know, Duke's been a good example of yeah. this, this yes. year. So oh, it's like, God. I think Tell when they come it. off a huge win at North Carolina blew out their rival two days later on Monday, they were a little complacent against Virginia. And yeah, I think, Young teams are more prone to this, and Duke is a very young team. There's a lot of freshmen in that rotation, uh, sophomores too. So that is that is a big part of it. Like you're always trying to get inside the mindset of a team. Like 
how much are they motivated for this game? Are they tired from travel? Are they uh, just kind of like sick of their current schedule? Like there's so much that goes into trying to figure that out, but I do think it's important. Like, and I think trying to do it for as many teams as we do, it's hard, but if you're a Duke fan, and you watch every Duke game, you probably have a really good idea of when you're going to get a good performance and when you're not. And that, that's, that's the great part of being a fan is you're pretty dialed into your team. And, I, and, and to the broader point there, I don't even think that's true of just this year. You know, again, generally speaking, these young Duke teams in these sorts of marginal, like bubble team sorts of games, we lay eggs in the first half. I mean, that's been true for years and years now. Not true of every game but true more often than not. So I think the idea of contextualizing results and the idea of realizing that results fall within a range of expected outcomes is something that is very hard for people to wrap their minds around. It's hard for me sometimes to wrap my mind around. For sure. But uh, it's really good when you're talking about basketball to, to just not seem so certain because when you're certain, first of all, you probably sound like a dick. And second of all, you're uh, going to, have to eat crow later <laughs> right right and having the extreme take and the decisive take is always the more exciting one it's more exciting to be like there's no chance that gonzaga wins the NCAA tournament but but yeah. there is there's a chance they win like yeah like just it's it's definitely a possibility so i always try to be on that in, in that gray area on that fence but it's it does admittedly make it less interesting and polarizing and yeah you're, you're way less likely to get hired by espn or cbs if you're uh, not uh <laughs> true if you're true. not dishing out those hot takes baby um <laughs> well speaking of the tournament um let's let's do a little uh predictions here let's let's make some calls here okay uh, i wanted to ask you how many teams is the acc getting into the dance. And, and I thought I would, I thought I would frame it as this. If I was putting, because the guy who's angrily texting me right now, the Duke is hundred percent a one seed. Uh, we have a bet that we made about a, a month ago. Um, we had set the over under on ACC teams uh, in the dance at 4.5. Now at the time I hammered the under, I felt very, very good about it. I feel less good about it now. Um, I don't feel okay about it. I still feel like I have a decent shot. Uh, Bart Torvik right now currently has three teams above, uh, like uh, four teams above 70% on his tourney cast metric. He's got uh, another team right around 50th uh, or 50%. But what would you choose? I think right now I would barely go over. I, my hunch is that the ACC will get five. Uh, I think coming into the ACC season, because a lot of teams didn't do that well in the non-con, there weren't a ton of seemingly big wins available. Like the, you're not getting the, oh, Duke's coming to town. North Carolina's coming to town. Like only right. Duke was up there on that, that pedestal. What's really helped the ACC is that road teams have won a lot. And sure. because of the way the quadrants are set up, if you're like the, to, this is to get in the NCAA tournament, winning on the road is harder and it's given that kind of a boost in your resume. So whereas playing Miami at home is a quad two game winning at Miami is a quad one game. And I'm looking at it and in the ACC this year, home teams have only won 54% of games. That's <laughs> that's the 25th uh, ranked contributed to that. Yeah. In the, in of conferences, that's the 25th highest. 
So like road teams have won almost half of all games, which is really shocking when, when you factor in home court advantage and, and getting crowds back first last year. But so when it seemed like maybe there weren't that many big win opportunities available because teams have won on the road, those have registered as bigger wins. I think the ACC has gotten itself in position to get five. Although that last one, Virginia tech winning at Miami was a, a snafu there because Miami was supposed yeah. to be the fifth and they dropped to one to a, another bubbly team there. Yeah. I, it's, it's really hard to say because the, the other factor here obviously is that going forward, there were basically like no chances for truly big wins, especially for a team like Duke. Um, there just aren't really many big wins left, big scalps to be collected. Whereas like any of those other bubble teams that are like, you know, the Rutgerses and the Oregons and the, uh, the Indianas and, and teams like this, like they could rip out a couple of Q1 wins. They're going to have a lot of losses, but like, you know, if, if wake loses to like some middling ACC team, that's a real bet. Like, uh, like if I'm betting on five teams making it in, I'm betting that basically none of those four teams have a loss that is not considered an excusable or decent loss. And I feel like the chances of like one of them losing a game aren't bad. Yeah. Uh, it's it's yeah. precarious for sure. Like, because yeah. only Duke is an ironclad lock, but the other ones are, down by the bubble, like they're prone to potentially dropping out. Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah. I think four and a half is the perfect line at this point. Yeah. Um, God, I wish I'd, I wish I had made it slightly higher before when he was really <laughs> siced on the ACC returning to, to strength. Uh, bracket matrix currently has Duke as a two seed wake as a 10 and Notre Dame and Miami, both as 11s UNC as a 12, you know, I wanted to ask because people uh, certainly in a Duke Twitter feed ask a lot about UNC. Why are, why are they in? What have they done? What's the deal? And, you know, I, like obviously the metrics are strong. I bring that up. But when I look at a couple of teams on the outside in bracket matrix, like when I take BYU being out, BYU 19 and 9, UNC's 21 and 8, so obviously slightly better just – wins and losses BYU has four quad one wins to UNC's one BYU's played more quad one games both teams have a quad four loss obviously BYU's played more quad four games than UNC so their schedule is definitely a little lighter but like when you combine quads three and four UNC's actually played I think four more quad three and four combined games than BYU so it's not like UNC's got some world beating resume you know, I, I think you could even potentially argue that BYU's resume is not especially different than somebody like Miami's. So, yeah, for yeah. Sure. so, so, and I think VCU is potentially, now VCU has got the injury thing with Baldwin. And I, there's maybe some stuff there, but like, again, three quad one wins to UNC's one. How do we, how much do we think that these ACC teams are just benefiting from the idea that they are in the ACC when we can kind of clearly see on paper that, the ACC teams on the bubble have comparable resumes to some of the better mid-major teams. They're probably benefiting a little. Um, and I know like you're kind of talking about the quad four games and stuff, but UNC being 11 and zero against quad three, like I'm sure their expected wins against those teams are probably like 9.8 or something. So winning all 11 of them is above what they would be expected to do. 
and all of that kind of incremental stuff has added up in North Carolina's favor. Um, the metrics that are on the team sheet, both quality, which they're, is yeah, they're predictive, good. and resume, which is kind of like strength of record, that kind of thing. Those are really strong, like that of a eight or nine seed historically. They're not going to get an eight or nine seed because they haven't won enough big games. Those Q1 wins just aren't – they're lacking in them. But based on historical selection criteria, it would be a huge upset if a team with North Carolina's numbers did not get in. Yeah, I think they're 40th in both net and Ken Palm right now. Um, so, and then obviously, yeah, they, they just haven't dropped another bad one. Um, I mean, I, this, this also raises, you know, a, a secondary question, which is, let's say I view these ACC teams kind of like a very good, you know, mid, mid-major resume, essentially these, these Notre Dame's Miami's UNC's that they're somewhat on the ballpark equivalent to the VCU's, the BYU's, you know, some of these guys. I, would we prefer that these teams get in over the more seasoned high major teams that have much better quad one resumes, not really many bad losses, but obviously have a much worse win loss record. It's, it's tough. I That's usually like, the question every year. <laughs> I gravitate towards like, I want the team that has shown it can play above its level. Like mm. has one, like Dayton's not going to get in because they just dropped another Q3, Q4 game. Uh, right. But they beat Kansas, they beat Miami, they a couple other big wins. And I like, I like knowing that they have that upside, whereas somebody like North Carolina, happy to throw shade at UNC on a, on a Duke podcast here, <laughs> like they've shown no ability to just step up in class and beat a team that they can't. So it's like, all right, we're going to let them in the tournament. They'll probably win maybe one game and then lose. And obviously, like Dayton, in my, my example here, could do the same thing but they've shown way more ability to punch above their weight class and, and rise to a higher level. And those teams just intrigue me more. Like, I, I think yeah. that makes for a more fun tournament, like just doing what you're supposed to do and kind of skating along. That's, that's the boring resume to me. For, for UNC, assuming that they, I don't want to assume, but let's assume they lose to Duke in Cameron at coach K's last home game, because if that didn't happen, then I'm going to just take a week long nap. Um, they play home at Syracuse. I mean, you've got to think they'll beat Syracuse. Syracuse is not good. Uh, so then we've got the NC, uh, the ACC tournament. At like what what type of game does UNC have to lose? Assuming they also lose to uh, Duke, right? So they finish at twenty two and nine regular season. Where at what point in the ACC tournament, if you think they pick up that tenth loss, does that knock them out of the dance? <sighs> or, is, or or are they just not knocked out of the dance? Are they pretty safely in? If they lose like a first, I, I, they're, they're going to be in a pretty solid seeding spot, unfortunately, because like if they go 14 and six in the ACC and get the three seed, they likely won't play somebody as bad as Georgia Tech, NC State, Pitt. So there's a chance they won't even have to deal with that risk. If they lose to one of these other bubble teams, Wake, Virginia Tech, they'll probably be fine. The, it, the, the metrics are strong, but it's, it's, it's never easy to say that in a vacuum right. because of the wins other people will pick up, sure. potential bid stealers in some of the smaller leagues. Uh, my guess is North Carolina will make the tournament, though. That's just kind of ultimately where I land. Right now, I think they would face in the quarterfinals, assuming that chalk proceeds, they would face Virginia. Okay. Yeah, that's probably right in that 
sweet spot of like they're gonna yeah, it's, it's gonna be a quad two loss i think like virginia's inside the top yeah. 100 of the nets a neutral court it won't be a bad loss as it's registered on a team sheet yeah interesting um byu or or unc who would you put in uh i'd probably begrudgingly put unc byu's I know it's not supposed to matter, but the last month and a half, they've been bad. Like they have not been, they've dropped some dumb ones. Yep. So, um, what are getting to the question that my group chat is currently exploding my phone with, what are the chances Duke gets a one seed? If you were just going to guess a percentage of likelihood, obviously this is not, uh, any sort of official math here, but if you were just going to ballpark a number, where would you put that number? I'll go something like 30 to 35. Oh, that's which, higher than me. Nice. I mean, I yeah. tell you what, it was like 10 on Friday when you sent that's me this true. breakdown. <laughs> and yes. then every yeah. team above them took <laughs> losses. Uh, so the came, field came back to them a little bit. The other thing that I think mattered was the top 16 bracket reveal. I think just about everybody had Duke on a three line before that. And the committee yeah. put Duke on the two, which I, I don't know exactly what bumped them up to that two line, but I think it showed a little bit more respect for Duke for their resume than maybe we were expecting. And since then Duke's been pretty solid. Some of the teams above them have dropped a little bit. If they win out and there's going to be some losses among the Kansas Baylor, Kentucky, Auburn group, because they have to play each other quite simply. I think there's a chance. I don't think it's 50, 50. I don't think it's a coin flips chance, but uh, I think they could get there. And, and Coach K is pretty good history in the ACC tournament. Yeah, he's not. Although I think we've only won it like three of the last 10 years or something like it's, well, it's compared to the regular season. That's better. Th- that is definitely better. <laughs> uh, although it's it's closer to where it was than you would think. So, like, I, I, I just wanted to throw this out. I'm going to read some numbers to people um, because, you know, people just don't understand why when everyone lost, why we're still I think Lenardi. I think he moved us up above Purdue, but still had us as maybe like the seventh team in sort of the snaking format there. You know, so let's say, I mean, tell me if you think I'm leaving anybody out. I would say maybe like the 10 best candidates for two seeds, at least would be, uh, or two seeds are better, would be Gonzaga, Arizona, Kentucky, Kansas, Baylor, Duke, Auburn, Villanova, Purdue, Texas Tech. Would we say yep. those, those sound think- about right? That's that's the 10. Yeah. I mean, like Wisconsin yeah. and Providence have the resumes of two seeds, but yeah, if they went out, then maybe they can. But yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, just to just to compare. <laughs> right. So that people can hear the numbers here. Right. Gonzaga first and net three losses, eight quad one wins, zero quad two losses, zero quad three losses. Uh, we're just not getting past Gonzaga. It doesn't it doesn't matter. <laughs> like I maybe they lose to like. Portland or something like they I like can't I, because the way the tournament's set up silly yep. bracket, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they are, they are a lock to be ahead of us. Arizona is second in net three overall losses, five quad one wins, which is same as Duke one quad two loss compared to Duke's two quad two losses and one quad three loss, zero quad three losses. I, I mean, I guess they could tumble, but that resume looks pretty safely ahead. I would think like, I mean, maybe maybe there's a chance they can drop something. But again, you're talking about a team that is certainly likely to be ahead. I mean, maybe uh, at USC on Tuesday is probably the last like really meaningful challenge in the regular season that they have. 
Yep. Um, so maybe they lose that, then things might get interesting. Uh, but let's say for now they're safely ahead. Kentucky fourth and net six overall losses more than Duke, but there's also some injury considerations in there, which we know that the committee at least weighs somewhat when guys like severe Wheeler or Ty Ty Washington have been out. And we know that they will be playing in the tournament and they have eight quad one wins and no quad two or quad three losses. I mean, to, to me that unless they drop like another one, like they lose to Florida or something, then that's different. But like if, if certainly if they went all the way and won the sec tournament, I've got to think they're ahead. Yeah. And I, I think Kentucky has a lot of um, perception edge. People just like that sure. team full strength. I perceive them as awesome. And the one thing the committee did say on the bracket reveal is the only time they really care at all about head to head. And I know this will probably be a, a Duke point because you beat Kentucky is right. if they are directly next to each other on the seat sure. line. So if Duke and Kentucky are four or five, then maybe they will, give Duke the bump there. But if it's Kentucky's fourth and Duke is seventh, they're not going to vault yeah. Duke above them. It's definitely. Consi- that's definitely interesting in terms of uh, region considerations, which we'll talk about after this, uh, you know, Kansas and Baylor, both fifth and sixth in net five overall losses, multi- double digit quad one wins, both have one quad two loss, zero quad three losses. I mean, you got to think if one of them wins the big 12 tournament that they're a one seed. Yes, hundred percent. If, if if either of them win the Big Twelve, they're a lock once. So now we're so now we're really starting to get into you know the weeds here. Where if if Kentucky or Auburn wins the SEC tournament and doesn't drop any dumb stuff, if if either of them win out, if Kansas or Baylor, if either of them win out, both. But I mean, one of those two teams winning out feels not completely improbable for both of those conferences. And then you've got Gonzaga, you've got Arizona. We haven't even brought up Villanova. I know that's maybe a bit more marginal. And, and I think Duke was ahead of Villanova in the S curve, if I recall correctly. Yep. Uh, so certainly Duke would have to lose to get behind them. But I also think they have a pretty good chance of, of at least breathing down our necks. Um, yeah. I, I just, I get worried that, Duke does definitely have to win out. There's no question that that's true. And then like, but we've just got, we're eighth in strength of schedule of those 10 teams. We're eighth in out of conference strength of schedule of those two teams. We have fewer quad one wins available than any other team left, except maybe Gonzaga, but they've got so many more quad one wins than us. It doesn't matter. Um, Yeah. I mean, like it's going to be hard to pass either Kansas or Baylor, even if one of them loses like twice. Right now, they have. I would argue both, both. I'd argue that both of them lose the Big Twelve tournament. They still have a very good chance of both yeah. being ahead of a one-out Duke. They're both sixteen and five against top two quadrants. Duke is eleven and three. Like they've just they've had a few more opportunities. Out. They also neither of them have a bad loss, and Duke has yeah. that quad three loss lurking. So it it's going to be really tough to pass both of them. They're, yeah. they've, they've put together strong resumes. But I, I just wanted to bring up those numbers so that people could like actually hear them so that when I say like, yeah, Duke can win out and we would still need considerable help. Yeah. From, oh yeah. It, it's from like four of the seven teams that are were ahead of us on the announcement the other day have got to, have got to really help us out. Yeah. I think and, you're probably a favorite yeah. to win out, but even if you win out, you're probably still less than a coin flip to get a one seed. And so winning out is, and on. winning out is still tough. Yeah. <laughs> and you still have to win out. <laughs> yeah. 
so yeah, I don't say this to be like a Debbie Downer Duke guy, but like uh, just the math, it's so hard to get there other than like the only argument, which is what my group chat is blowing up. It's like, it's the ACC. If you win the ACC, you only have four losses in the ACC and you win the ACC tournament, you're a one seed done. It's like, yeah, but Duke fans are also the same ones that feel like Gonzaga shouldn't get a one seed whenever they lose to BYU because their schedule is so light. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the ACC is not that good this year. That matters. The ACC's just not that good this year. They're yep. not that good. Uh, speaking of regions, if you were rooting for Duke to succeed, which I know is a very tough premise, but but go with me. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna have to boycott this portion. <laughs> <laughs> if you were, if you had a, a tasty Duke future bet. There we go. Uh, would you rather have Duke as a two seed in the West or a three seed in the East? Yeah, it's it's two West for me. Uh, yeah. First of all, I've seen Duke play a neutral site game in the Pacific time zone this year. So and there I. were a bajillion. Yeah, we both were, were in attendance <laughs> here in Vegas. And there are a bajillion Duke fans. They always travel well, but yeah. especially so this year. It's Coach K's final year. Everywhere Duke plays, they, they could set this game in. Uh, Alberta, Canada, or like somewhere in South America. And there would be Duke fans in attendance, making it like a Duke heavy crowd. So I actually don't really think location matters at all uh, for, for this blue devil team. Great. Uh, so yeah, two seeds, just better than a three. You've got the numbers in here, but you're just, yeah. you're going to be playing slightly worse competition. Yeah. I, I tweeted some of these numbers out, but for those of you who missed those, you know, since 1985, 40, over 45% of two seeds have made the elite eight and a little over 25% of three seeds have made the elite eight. And when you combine that with three seeds are 10% more likely to lose in the opening round than a two seed. I mean, like that's, those numbers are, <laughs> you've got to really hate the West. So hey, I'll like, just remind you that the Duke has done both lose in the first round as a three seed and a two seed recently. We have. <laughs> and uh, you know, it is certainly, we, we want the easier path. <laughs> there is no, yes. no team. And also any team that has never lost in the first round as a two or a three seed has only not lost until they have. Yeah. So, yeah. There's like for somebody like Villanova that would play borderline home games at Wells Fargo in Philadelphia. Like, I think the geographical edge matters for them. Duke is such a national brand. There are fans everywhere. They're willing to travel and they're going to travel for this final year. I just, I think any arena is going to have a ton of Blue Devil fans. There's a, there's a bracket possibility where Kentucky's the one seed in the East, Duke's the two seed in the East, and Villanova's the three seed in the East that feels really bad. <laughs> feels feels rude to Kentucky and that, Duke to play those games in Philadelphia. <laughs> that that would be and and just doing doing Villanova in Philly and then following it with the surge in Kentucky team just because like I know that the tournament committee always like denies that they do any sort of narrative based selection or whatever, but like the 30th year anniversary of Duke Kentucky 1992, which was also in Philly. I mean, I, I there's. I there go. just, I've got to think there's a non-zero chance that they'd do that and then be like, well, the numbers said that we had to do that. So, uh, you know, it is what it yeah. is. And if you get yeah. to tune the West, it's probably with Gonzaga. You've beaten Gonzaga in the Pacific time zone already. So you should That's be comfortable true. with that. Although Gonzaga San Francisco feels even more Westernly. I don't know. Like <laughs> yeah. that, that feels pretty rough. Like if I had to choose, I think the more interesting question now, because I asked you this question before Saturday, where a one seed really seemed unlikely, where even a three seed seemed more likely than a one at that point. Now it's probably flip-flopped a little. Um, Would you rather have a one seed in the West or a two seed in the East with Villanova as your three? 
<laughs> yeah, I think I'd probably go one in the West. You have almost no risk of losing in the first <laughs> round. So that, that yes. helps a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, there's always risk, but <laughs> as we know too well, but yes. Yeah. Just pick the seed line. So the people who are like, well, just get us in the East. Nah, dude, the numbers aren't there. Um, let's stop talking resume for a second and uh, just talk about the team in general. You're an outsider. Not, not an outsider. You've watched Duke many times, but you're, you're, you don't have rooting interest in Duke. Let's put it this way. What are broadly you think Duke's strengths and weaknesses as a tournament team this season? I mean, the, the first one, you, you can't not start with talent. Like the talent is just overwhelming. There's a chance there's five first round picks on this team. There's definitely two lottery picks, at least with Griffin and Bancaro. That is, that is one. Like if you're a team playing them, you know, that Duke's best is better than your best. Like it's just, you have to go in knowing that and you have to kind of hope that Duke isn't at their best because the ceiling for this blue devils team. We've seen it. The Gonzaga game was about as good as it gets. It's just higher than, than basically anybody can put out there. Um, th- th- I think also just the size, the physicality of athle- the athleticism, they have two centers that can really just power, like be powerful in the paint. Uh, you can, even if you go small, I'm saying small in air quotes for those listening, uh, you've got Bankero and Griffin and Wendell Moore is like a, a physical beast on the wing. So that kind of stuff is really overwhelming. And when, when Duke ratchets up the defensive pressure, that's there's not a lot like it because of the, the guard quickness that they have and the strength, you can really put some teams in prison. Those, I think, are the biggest strengths. Yeah, I, I'd say you, to add on to that, um, our offensive rebounding has really started to turn it on. We're getting extra possessions. That's really nice. Um, I like that we just a lot of the more unique defense styles that teams could throw at you, like, like zones and like, uh, you know, full court press defenses. I think Duke's just tailor made to destroy those. I mean, I, I was stunned. Somebody, somebody told me they were like, Lenardi's a hater uh, against Duke or whatever. And I was like, nah, he's not, he's just doing his job. And they're like, nah, he said on TV that uh, Syracuse would beat Duke. And I was like, now that is surprising <laughs> yes. because Duke has done so well against zone. We just move the ball so, so well. We've got the perfect zone buster. Um, and then full court presses. Again, we just move the ball too well. We're too fast. We're too big. I mean, like we've got a couple of guys who can just look over your defenders as we make those passes. Um, yeah, I've got, I got some numbers for you. Oh, you, please. I'd love numbers. Love numbers. Yeah. Against zone per synergy this year, Duke is scoring 1.12 points per possession. That's 25th in the entire country. That's really good. And against full court pressure, 6% of the time. So not a ton of, they haven't faced this a lot, but they're scoring 1.18 points per possession. That is third in the entire country against press. Like Duke has been incredible. I know there's concerns about their point guard situation, but you, you're not going to take advantage of it via full court press because, as you mentioned, Duke has lit it on fire when teams what, try to do that. What was the ranking in zone, too? I don't have synergy numbers, so this is fascinating. Uh, 25th. 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 I mean, that's still – yeah, that I mean, that matches the eye test very, very well, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I also think that our ability to run teams off the three-point line, certainly one of the ways that you can get beaten – uh, by a less talented team is they're just going to try and jack up a bunch of threes and and crank up the variance, you know, make that sort of thing happen. Obviously we talked about the three point percentage defense a little bit and how that's, you know, that is what it is, but again, almost top 50 and running teams off the line. We've got the length on the perimeter. We've got some, uh, you know, good quickness as well. Uh, so I'm just, I'm not as concerned about a team just bombing over the top of us uh, as much as maybe some of the other teams that we've had in the one and done era. Yeah. 
Uh, and then, and then on the weakness front, I would say it's, it's kind of disciplined teams that execute. I was trying to look through, I wrote the, I wrote the word discipline twice in my little thing that I read <laughs> down there. Yeah. Just looking through like some of the games that they've lost to uh, execution, meaning like off ball movement has been a weakness for Duke teams that yeah. are not running. Like Duke is going to destroy anyone that tries to beat them with pick and roll. I, I think Duke is going to be too good against pick and roll. But if you're running a lot of motion or Princeton or action off the ball, like Virginia is one of the most off ball offenses in the country. It's all cuts off screens. And they were able to, to be pretty effective against Duke twice. Miami got backdoor after backdoor against Duke at, yeah. uh, at Cameron. So it's teams that are able to move the ball smartly, take care of it, and then be patient in the half court and not make their own, not make mistakes, I guess. Yeah. I, well, again, I don't have the synergy numbers. I'd have to imagine that uh, I, I don't know what measurements are there in terms of like uh, very cut heavy offenses, but like over the last decade plus over the one and done era, that's been, you know, just a tried and true method of beating Duke. That's yeah. I've got a, a, I got a couple synergy numbers. Oh, there. baby. Give them to me. Uh, against pick and roll ball handlers, Duke is 14th in the country. Like the, you don't score in the pick and roll against them. They take away ball handlers. I think they just force them into mid-range shots and, and those are tough to shoot over. But against cuts, they're 170th. <laughs> and against handoffs, they're 331st. Like that, that kind of like really forcing them to make decisions and stuff, I think is, is where Duke's defense lapses a little bit. Wow. Those are great. <laughs> those are great numbers. Yeah. Again, these are great examples. This is why I love doing this show. Cause you can, these are things that have matched the eye test for me over the last decade. And then when you see that the numbers match the eye test, it's pretty nice. Yep. Um, working in conjunction. Uh, yeah. I, we obviously don't defensive rebound well, and we don't turn teams over. And I don't mind that we don't turn teams over because it means we're not jumping out for steals the way we did early in the year, uh, which definitely led a lot of guys just sort of waltz to the rim. Um, but if we're not turning teams over and we're not defensive rebounding, that's going to create a lot of opportunity for teams to uh, extend their offensive possessions, get more shots. Certainly in the first half of ACC play, one of the biggest problems Duke had is I, I had the number at some point. It's in one of the old episodes, but I think through the first half of ACC play, we had allowed something like 18 field goal attempts more uh, to our opponents than we had taken. It might, it might even be higher than that. Um, yeah, just look, at, I just popped open the Florida State box score and Duke took 55 field goals. Yeah. And Florida State took 73. And and those numbers were consistent over even a lot of those early wins. Uh, you know, we, we just weren't doing that. We've done a better job on the rim. Um, you know, while Mark is really good defensively, I, one of my concerns is that he doesn't have the the like the the I always call it just like the thickness. You know, he doesn't have like that that width to deal with like the Coburns and the Edies. We saw Shebway get his sort of you know, on an island against Mark Williams, Zed Key certainly kind of got Mark Williams effectively on an island. Um, so that's obviously not a problem in the first rounds, um, but certainly in terms of making a deep run, uh, there might be some matchup issues there. Um, I, I've also seen, I, I think that teams are pretty, that teams that are disciplined in terms of running like mid-rangers and floaters against us, that's also been a problem for us because all of our line of defense is solely like based on stopping the perimeter and then having somebody right at the rim. So there is that space in the middle. And obviously Virginia beat us with some of that action. Uh, Wake Forest almost beat us with that action. Um, we've also had some issues when teams have uh, shooting big men that can 
you know, uh, make Paolo play defense exclusively on the perimeter, even stretch Mark out there. Like Miami, I think, went five out for a lot of that game. Uh, John Butler did well against us. Obviously, EJ Liddell did all the things I just talked about. Um, and then to the point that you had said about discipline, as much as the other defenses have done poorly uh, against us, you know, a good physical disciplined half-court defense can turn Duke over on the dribble drive game and just Duke we've seen for stretches, they'll get just mentally out of it where they'll just be like, Oh, well I'll take threes. And like Duke's a good shooting team, but that's just, we're so much better when we're moving the ball. Like our assist rates really high when, when the ball's moving, we're an, a crushingly elite defense, but those ISO possessions uh, are bad. And the dribble drives against those sorts of, physical bully type of uh, half court defenses. It, it feels like the sort of team that would beat us that beat us in years past would be like South Carolina, 2017. We're like our defense this year is a lot better than Duke's defense in 2017, but like they just hammered us and Duke just started to go like, well, this sucks. I don't like this. <laughs> we just bomb away from deep. I don't want to like yeah, run into the lane take, and get let me just run take over. Some I don't want, uh, yeah. I don't want Cinderius Thornwell whacking the shit out of me some more, you yeah. know? So I, we just got to know that's coming. And, and again, I think in the both Virginia games, we saw Duke struggle with physicality. Some for stretches, uh, they adjusted very well in the second one, but yeah, consistency and discipline, I think are really key. Uh, take not taking lower seeds for granted, you know, in that, in that respect. And then Duke's complete lack of tournament experience is certainly uh, a problem for me. Uh, our, our current tournament experience, Joey Baker and Theo John have combined for 24 minutes of tournament play for three total points. Ooh, I didn't and realize it was quite to that degree. It's that, it's that low because we missed 2020. And then obviously Duke didn't get in uh, last year. Um, and there just aren't really any meaningful seniors on the team other than, other than Joey. And he was not meaningful that, that first year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's even more stark than I realized. Yeah. So that's something we're, we're going to talk about a bit highly ranked teams that we would want to see in the dance. We're going to run into issues where we're just going to see teams that are used to playing in those big NCAA tournament games. And even if we have a talent advantage, we're going to have to show a lot of poise uh, in order to get over the talent, uh, the, the experience advantage they're going to have there. Um, last couple of questions I want to ask Jim uh, if, and thanks for staying so long, by the way, this is, I'm, I'm having a good time. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully the listeners are enjoying it. Yeah. And if they're not, then, you know, they can turn it off or they can come back later. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. I was like a good, like two hour podcast where it's like, ah, you know, I'll, I'll listen later. Maybe make it a two-parter. Yeah. Do it, do a, do a Sam Vecini here. Yeah. If, um, if Duke ends up as a, as a two seed now, I had, I had phrased this as if Duke ends up as a, like a two or a three seed, because that's what looked most likely uh, when I emailed you, but you know, we can maybe even adjust it a little bit. If Duke ends up like somewhere in that one to three range, which we know there will be, are there teams that we don't want to see in that like six to 11 range uh, that we really don't want to see? And then obviously if there are any like 15 seed types that you think are really dangerous first round guys. The, the one for the, I'll answer the, the like low seed 15, 14, just because there are less candidates there. I'll answer that one first. Sure. I, Cleveland state's the one that jumped out to me because they are basically mid-major Florida state and they're not as ravaged with injury as Florida state is right now. Their coach is a former Leonard Hamilton assistant, Dennis Gates, and they run like 10 deep. They're athletic. They're physical. They play hard as hell. They're going to defend. So I think there's a little bit of that FSU uh, DNA to them a little bit that could, could frustrate Duke some. 
Uh, Wagner, if they win the NEC, I, I would have liked them as a potential frustrating candidate, but one of their best players got hurt late in the season. So maybe I'll throw them out. And then Princeton in the Ivy League, only because of the way they run offense, I think Duke would score 110 points against them probably. Uh, but their their offense is is potent. They've got a couple of versatile threats in the front court. They can shoot like they could really spread Duke out with with shooting. Um, so that that's one potential candidate there. What do you in, before before moving on from that one? What do you think of Towson? I think Towson's scary for whoever they play. Yeah, because I was good. I was surprised to see them on bracket matrix as a like a fourteen uh, projected because I mean they're sixty third in Ken Palm. Uh, the offense obviously pretty potent. Um, yeah, it's year after year they're an awesome offensive rebounding team, and you mentioned Duke's yep. issues on the defensive glass, and their coach finally unlocked this secret, which was, oh, I should recruit shooters too. Yeah. So like they added, yeah, added shooting to a team that's always been really physical and and great up front. So if, and they play that really uh, slow tempo also, my hunch is that Towson will be a 13. Um, I think because of some of the analytical rankings, there'll probably be some upsets like in the conference tournament. So if Towson wins their league tournament, I think they will be a 13. They're just too good. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, and then that six through uh, 11 range. So team DNA or, or, um, like kind of attitude. I immediately thought of St. Mary's yep. just because they're so smart and they will not beat themselves. They can kind of play like, like if you're playing tennis, St. Mary's is the wall. Like you just, <laughs> you're, you're going to make a mistake before the wall is, but St. Mary's is like all pick and roll this year on offense. And I think Duke can handle that. So that, that scares me a little less. Uh, I was thinking maybe Davidson because they run such, such good action off the ball. They kind of, they could do some Virginia esque things. To Duke's defense, they have really good shooters everywhere. Uh, and then Iowa's a little bit like that too. If they were the seven seed, maybe, but I think even Coach K would coach circles around Mr. McCaffrey, so that wouldn't be a problem. Then you mentioned kind of like the physical half court defenses that that I think would give Duke issues. And so San Diego State, VCU, and wait for it, Memphis. Yeah, I, 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 think, I have Memphis written down as well. Somebody that can actually match Duke's athleticism like Memphis is so rare. Uh, yep. It can match their physicality. Now, there's going to be some bad offensive possessions in that game by both teams, I think. But that means it's probably going to be a lot closer than you would expect. Memphis is definitely better than they showed in the uh, non-conference portion of the year. That would be a like, ah, do we really have to play those guys? We don't want that at all. I, I feel like those are the sorts of games, frankly, this year that I'm a little more concerned about. I, I, I know that obviously like I don't want to like say these things on the air because then if we like get upset by some team, then I look like a total dum-dum. But like, you know, the, the Davidsons of the world, the Iowas of the world, yeah, they can bomb away. And like, uh, don't get me wrong, that can definitely be very scary. But like just Duke's defense, while it's not like a top three defense or anything there have also been very very few games where the other team has just like gotten away from us like i i don't know that there's a single game this year i mean even in our losses team scoring like a little over one point per possession like i don't know that we have a single game where we've let the other team really get above one point per possession in, in a super meaningful way Whereas our offense can definitely get stagnant. Uh, I was definitely worried about St. Mary's not uh, 
even less so their offense, but more just watching what they did to Gonzaga in terms of not allowing ball movement. Like the Duke's Duke fans know when we just stop moving the ball and it becomes my turn, your turn, like it becomes gross real fast. And, uh, you know, St. Mary's is just disciplined enough on offense that if they can make our offense a little gross, then then that's obviously huge for them. I also wrote down San Diego State and Memphis for those exact same reasons. Uh, San Diego State, best defense in the country. For those of you who have not seen, they're a projected 10 seed right now, but they're 22nd in Ken Palm. Uh, so definitely a lot stronger than a 10 seed. Top 35 in experience. They're basically like all juniors and seniors of, the, of that starting lineup. Uh, you know, really good coach, obviously. I mean, like that's, that's just like a lot of stuff that, that feels tailor made to disrupt what Duke wants to do. And then yeah, Memphis, uh, look, I, I, I've joked on Twitter about Penny. I think we all have, he was, he was having a tough time of it. I mean, maybe, but like since Imani Bates went out, uh, they're a top five team on Bart Torvik for the month of February. I mean, like that's, that's, not, I mean, yeah, they're playing in the American, but like that's still there's real talent and size there. Obviously, real lottery uh, stuff going on uh, with Duran. Um, and if they, yeah, I mean, yeah. basically, like any team that's a two or three seed or one seed, honestly, like if I got this question, Memphis would be the answer. It would be yeah. one of the answers because it's just like they're just better than where they're going to be seated. Yeah, they just were so terrible early, and now they are. Now they're just coming alive. There and there have been a couple of teams like that. I feel like in the past where they just like bombed in November and then just like figured it out and seemed tailor made to to do some damage. Um, I still don't know how much like faith I have in them necessarily. Certainly, but like, yeah, if you're picking a team like that, that 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 seems like the move. And then I, I wanted to throw Marquette in there, honestly, like just because like they just seem like they'd be really annoying. Like they just play real hard. They can yes. certainly spread the floor. They've got dynamic wing play. They're an experience too, but that Lewis Morcel combo just seems like the sort of very dangerous tag team that can mess you up. I, I just really like what I've seen from them this year. Um, I, I've had a lot of people say Murray state in my, uh, in my mentions. Um, I kind of buy it. I kind of buy it. Yeah, I, how much? How much though? Like, do the Murray States like Murray State is also like a top fifty Ken Palm Luck team, you know? Not that not to dismiss the fact that they just have uh, more than your typical uh, talent for what you would expect from their conference, but I, I like yeah, I it, mean the the luck thing like it, the luck is what has them at twenty eight and two instead of twenty six and four. But yeah, I guess that's they're still true. top thirty in the in Ken Palm. Yeah. Like that, they are talent wise. They're they're kind of head and shoulders over what you'd expect. Like they have well, a Davidson, sure a David's like their fifth and sixth best players are a South Carolina transfer and a Davidson transfer. Like those are their fifth and sixth best players. That kind of tells you how good the top part of their rotation is. Those guys just came in and, and are role players for them. Oh, I didn't realize they were put at an eight. For some reason, I thought they were a little higher than that. Okay. Well, then I'd buy a little more. Like if they were more like a six or a seven, I would kind of be like, I mean, that like feels right. And I'm not, but if they were an eight, that's, that's kind of a shitty draw. Yes. I feel like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just misread that. Um, which of the highly ranked teams this is the last question from the outline, which the highly ranked teams would Duke really want to see in their region? Like what are the, what are the teams that you feel like, Duke could match up with really well in like a final four game or, or not a final four. If I'm asking about regions, but like an elite eight game. 
Well, yeah, I guess this would be before Elite Eight, but you want to see Texas. I think this Texas team is bad and and not really a team I would be worried about if I were Duke, uh, even though they have solid half-court defense. Purdue, I, I just – Purdue's defense is such a flawed side yeah. of the ball, maybe as flawed as any one side of the ball for a top 15 team as we have this year. So – and, and we can and spread them out too. Spread them out, and you have the post defenders. Like you showed the post defense against Gonzaga, against Stratimi. I know that Zach Eady is a totally different beast, but <laughs> you'd at least have a prayer of holding him somewhat in check and not having to uh, double, which is what Michigan State did this weekend, held them to nine three point attempts. Three point yeah. attempts. Like that team shoots yeah, over 40% wild. from three. If you can keep them from bombing away, that's good. And then uh, Providence and Wisconsin, like they're just. They're, they're not as good as their rankings would seem to suggest. So I think those would be uh, yeah, beatable for sure. Yeah. I, and, you know, I, I, I'd throw Tennessee on there just because I don't trust them away from home. Like, obviously, they've been very, very good at home. But I, I in the couple of road games I've watched of them play, I, I don't know what I like. And, I mean, I'm maybe it's like a bit of a meme there. But, like, Rick Barnes making it to the Final Four doesn't seem like the sort of thing that you want to yeah. push all your chips onto the table for. Um, I definitely feel like teams with like, I'm looking for teams with talent deficiency and teams with like short benches teams where, you know, if Duke does go seven, eight guys that like, like teams that play six guys, basically. So, so I Villanova. Mean, so yeah. So, but now I wouldn't want to play them in Philadelphia, obviously, but, right. and playing Jay Wright with the experienced guys they have there is always a little scary, but yeah, they're just so short, like in terms of how many, like, the, like those guys are going to be tired by sweet 16 elite eight. I would feel like that's it's probably, they're probably tired already. Um, I think if I really wanted to push and say like a name, that's like a really like be careful what you wish for kind of name. There's, am I crazy for thinking that like, if, if you catch Kansas on a David McCormick, low energy sort of game, which we've definitely seen games where he kind of floats, like, like I, I, I wouldn't be as scared of them as I would be of some of the other ones in that sense. Yeah, I'm not – Kansas I was coming into the year was my number two. I was like, this team rocks. I, I, yeah. I picked them to the title game. I've cooled a little on them. Yeah. Agbaji's obviously sick. But he's incredible. Their, their wing yeah. duo of Agbaji and Brown is unbelievable. But they don't have the same dyna- dynamism at point guard unless Rami Martin is actually going to get into form. Like, Dewan yeah. Harris is solid, but that's it. Yeah. He's just solid. Uh, and McCormick is so up and down, like you're mentioning. Like there, there are so many games where Self just gets frustrated with him and plays KJ Adams and Mitchell Lightfoot instead, and and that I, I would not work well against Mark Williams. Mark and... Williams would shove them in a locker. Yeah, yeah. so I'm not, I'm not too <laughs> concerned about that. Uh, yeah, Kansas is a yeah. team that I've I've cooled on a little. They're they're solid. They're well coached. Like they're going to be a one or two seed and in, in a tough out, but the ceiling outcome for them is lower in my mind. I. Uh... Also, this is now this one's really playing with fire. My last one's really playing with fire here. Am I insane for not completely thinking that like Baylor would take us in a locker with JTT out now? Uh, I don't, I mean, is, is I guess Cryer's or he is not back yet. No, um, I guess it's like pain management is what I've heard. This is like, it's probably not going to get better until it's, it's, he's just, it just hurts less. And I don't know yeah, when so, that'll be. So then they're playing like, six ish guys, you know, uh, maybe with crier would be like seven ish. Um, I, I know that, I mean, like their wings are like sick and they got that, those like six, eight, six, nine, six, nine guys, but like Duke's kind of equipped to 
play against a team like that to some extent. Uh, and yeah, just like if, if, if you can get Flo Thamba out of that game, like just who's the center, who's. Yeah. That's a lot of small ball. They're going to have to try yeah. really hard to spread Duke out in that, in that instance. But they, but they also won the title last year and they have a lot of experience and I don't, I don't want to see that unless I absolutely have to. Yeah. But that's if, if Baylor's in our brackets, that's who I'm talking. That's how I'm talking myself into being like, okay, this, this could work out. Yeah. 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 This yeah. would be all right. I wrote down UCLA too. I don't think you should be afraid of UCLA. They're they're so reliant on tough shot making yeah. and Duke challenges. Like Duke is a good on ball defense, and yes. UCLA isn't going to run a bunch of like intricate off ball stuff to get those shots. It's like Juzang has the ball and he drives on you. Jules Bernard has the ball and he attacks you. And like, I, I think Duke can handle that kind of thing. That is true, although although they are both very good in that mid range area. But but the mid range the way I, they get their yeah. mid range is different than like the way You're Virginia right. gets their mid range. You're right. Yeah. 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 No, I I agree. That would be living in L.A. Living right next to UCLA campus. That would be a uh, I'd have to watch <laughs> that one at home. Um, <laughs> I had a I had a couple people ask questions. If you got another couple minutes here, I put out on Twitter asking. Uh, I was like, hey, I got a bracketologist coming. Throw your questions out there, baby. Um. A lot of if Duke wins out. I haven't looked at these, by the way. If Duke wins out, what what do we need to happen as a one seed? We got that. What potential top four seeds would be good matchups for Duke? Who do you want to avoid? We got that. Do head-to-head wins not hold the weight that they used to? I mean, you already answered that. They do if you're like side by side. Hey, I'm not I'm not sure what weight they really used to hold. I think maybe that was more perception. But yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's only if you're side by side, like it's it's silly to put too much weight in one game when the teams play 30. So yeah, totally. Uh, here's a question directly for you from Chody Kotkins. That's my guy. <laughs> Never heard Kotkins. of him, but I love, love the name. It's a great name. Does Wisconsin get a one seed if they win out? I think that's uh, tough. That would require way more. I, I think there's a chance because they're, I mean, if they win the big 10 with only what they have four losses at this point, the thing yeah. that's holding them back right now is their predictive metrics. And the, the committee has shown that seating wise, not selection wise, but seating wise, they will put some weight in predictive stuff because they want to make they it fair. It they, even, yeah. Like they don't want Wisconsin to be an underdog in round two to the eight seed, like that. Although it happened to Illinois almost last year, but I, I think it would be hard for them to get up to that one. But the thing is, if they went out, they're probably going to up their predictive metrics to the point that maybe it's tenable as a one seed. Like I think the worst one seed I remember seeing. Was back when Xavier. I was going to say Xavier. Chris Mack, they were like 15th at Ken Palm. Yeah. And they got a one seed and they lost in the second round to Florida State, an athletic second round team. So usually they do put some preference on those quality metrics because those technically are the teams you would predict to do better in the tournament. Yeah. Wisconsin does have, oh, I was just looking at it. They do have a quad three loss. Much like, you know, uh, just like I think that for Duke, having one of those is like a good reason to just be like, if it's close, it's like, ah, but they lost yeah. an ugly well, one. It's it's home to Rutgers, which is going to dance around being Q2, Q3, I think, down the stretch here. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I don't think there's any chance that Dukes gets bumped up, sadly. <laughs> um, unless UVA beats UNC, knocks them out of the dance, and meets us in the uh, ACC uh, tournament title game. What a, what a delightful experience. I would watch a bunch of 50 to 45 games for that. Um, what's the top you'd want to do? Strengths analytically, blah, blah, blah. I think these are all questions that we've answered. Are, 
uh, I, I'm assuming that Mark is talking about in terms of bracketology, are, are there metrics for, uh, I'm assuming, uh, for maybe seeding and or getting into the field that are given more weight than others? So getting into the field, they definitely look at resume metrics. And on the team sheet, those are strength of record and KPI. Uh, Bart Torvik's got a handy link that has all of these team sheet metrics listed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Lucas Harkins, another a bracketology I work with over at Field of 68, said that no one has ever gotten in, or at least maybe in the last five years, with average qu- uh, resume metrics of worse than 52, which right now that would keep out like Loyola Chicago, Virginia Tech, um, some of the like Indiana's right on that borderline, BYU right on the borderline. So it seems, and I never thought about it this way, but they, they pick their 68 and then they seed them. It's not like they're going one through 68 for selection. Um, selection and seeding are two different processes. So that, that's kind of an important distinction. And so then once they're in, that's when the, uh, when Ken Palm and things like that probably get, play a more of get a more inter- Yeah. Like they're not going to look at predictive rankings on whether you deserve to be in the tournament like that. That's far less important. Right. They're just trying to avoid more of those like Kentucky, Wichita state kind of deals. Yep. Um, uh, would love to hear how Villanova as a likely three seed would get placed. Putting them in the East is a huge advantage over the higher seeds in that region. I mean, I, I assume though, that if they're a three seed that they would get the East, right? Yeah. I, I, I think the committee gave that to them in the, the top 16 reveal. They, they were placed in the East region. It's just like that's their bracketing principle. And I get like there's probably going to be some probably fair complaints to that if if you have to play like a semi road game against them. But unfortunately, that's that's the principles right now. Duke needs to play like three home games in Charlotte every year. And then when that's a site, (laughs) they could play at Charlotte and have quasi home games. Yeah, that'd be beautiful. Uh, yeah, maybe if Tennessee, I would say if Tennessee passes Villanova on the three line, like Tennessee would probably choose to play in the East versus the other places, presumably. Yeah, it, it definitely depends on order on there and how it shakes out. So yeah, yeah, maybe if, maybe if Villanova, you know, doesn't win the big East, maybe, maybe that would happen. And one, one other like little thing with that is because Villanova is the top big East team. If there was a big East team in the one or two seed lines, like if Providence got a two seed they would be in the East and Villanova could not go there. You can't have two teams from the same conference in the top four seeds of a region. So that would preclude them from being there, but that's only if Providence passes them. I have a guy named Chris Brown has been talking to me all, all day about uh, how teams with 20 point losses should not be in the top 10 and should not be top seeds. I think specifically talking about Kansas losing to Kentucky by a lot at home in the year. yeah that was troubling. yeah i mean uh to the to the point we made it also was an 18 point loss so get your facts right i'm surprised <laughs> that somebody named chris brown is saying anything remotely uh inaccurate um yeah uh chris if you are listening to this yeah as we talked about before one game sample size you know yeah. um also it, it's funny that kansas has a player named christian brown ah nice <laughs> hilarious i love it and then this last one uh, this was actually uh dm'd to me uh but i I, i'll just swing this into a uh into like one final question so i was asked what's the go-to site for like seeing tournament resumes like quad wins etc uh and then i would i would go beyond that and say in terms of if you're looking to learn more about predictive metrics and what have you where where do you go to look at things 
The best site for tournament resumes is warrennolan.com. He's got like a nitty gritty report that shows across the top record, strength of schedule, non-conference strength of schedule, home road, neutral record, the quad records. And then each team also has like a team sheet that you can click into and it shows every result aligned by quadrant. Like you can see every single game on there. It's got date, it's got site. Um, so that's probably something like we can tweet out or something. It's, it's really, really useful. Oh yeah. Look at that. Um, and then predictively it's Ken Palm, Bart Torvik, a little bit of Haslam metrics mixed in there. I think those are probably the, the big three that I use. Yeah. I, uh, Bart Torvik definitely also has, uh, I, I think he not only has what the current net stuff is, but also, you know, what the predicted net, uh, like, like the quadrant wins would be, um, which again is obviously a projection, but I, I found that pretty useful in terms of trying to, you know, discuss teams as do we think this is this sort of seed, this sort of seed. I mean, if, if it's a team that has two or three more losses realistically coming their way down the stretch of the season, then, you know, I think it's, I think it's worthwhile to suggest that maybe they'll be bumped down uh, once everything shakes out. Uh, yeah, the, I, the, he's yeah. got the resume compare tool that's really fun to play with. And yeah. right now, like Duke's current resume, the most similar resumes metric-wise, there's of the 10, two of them are one seeds, 2014 Virginia, 2017 Gonzaga, and then a bunch of twos and a couple threes, which so sounds about right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, I'm definitely going to play it with that. Bartorvik is also free to access, which is super yes. cool. Ken Palm is not free to access, but it's also really cheap. And I subscribe to it every year. It's 20 for an entire season. Or yeah. Entire year. Yeah. Calendar year. That's crazy. Yeah. For a calendar year. And then um, honestly, I was just using the NCAA site for net stuff just because it has like just all of the uh, records put side by side, uh, just in list form with the net. Uh, so pretty cool there. Uh, the other websites that you should also obviously be going to is three man weave.com three dash man dash weave.com. Um, I tell yeah, you the, what, con- the content's not great on there right now because of all of our yeah. contractual responsibilities, well, you're but live constantly. I mean, uh, which yeah. is really <laughs> great as somebody who loves, who loves listening to, uh, to shows because I hate reading. Pesky, yeah, wants to do that. Reading. Who wants to do that? Um, yeah, uh, the three men we've guys go live what five times a week, six times a week now on YouTube. Yeah, we've got that show five or six times a week. We do a Saturday show with Action Network. We're doing hits with radio and Vsin, Vegas Stats Information Network constantly. So the the three men we've handled is just kind of that's where everything the pipeline, that's where you know where we're where we're at. Everything's roped in there. And then obviously at the beginning of the year, uh, there is no site for my money that makes better detailed team by team breakdowns of even like the mid majors, the low majors. I mean, a lot of people ask me, you know, at the end of the year, when I talk about some of the mid major teams with even a passing degree of authority, they're like, how do you know? Do you watch all these games or whatever? It's like, no, but I watch a couple of them and I know who to watch because I knew who was probably going to be there. And I listen to shows where they tell me, Hey, you should be, you should be watching these teams. And three man weave certainly does that. So if you guys are interested in learning more uh, about the college basketball landscape in particular, uh, and certainly there's a roots roundup at the beginning of three man weave uh, does a great job of 
letting you know which teams have key injuries, uh, you know, big, big sort of seismic shifts on that front for, for noteworthy teams coming into March. Uh, and then you'll obviously do some sort of, uh, will you just do like a podcast breakdown when the bracket comes out or will you do a whole, like what's, what's coming down the pike? Yeah. And in, in past years, we've done like a huge game by game breakdown, every single one on our website. I'm not sure we're going to have time for that this year, but we will have a marathon podcast. We'll go about probably two hours on our own feed. Yeah, uh, we'll be on a couple shows on Field of 68 talking about that. I think maybe one or two shows on Action Network. We'll have some picks written up for Action Network and maybe one or two other places. Um, but we I don't know if we'll have the all-encompassing 68 or, or 32 <laughs> game write-ups. It's just it, those take so long. But uh, oh, they're brutal. But we gotta yeah. we we have to fill, fulfill our contractual obligations first. Unfortunately, the almighty dollar is, is screaming at us. Yeah, well, you guys have earned it. So by all means, uh, take the money and run, baby. Um, yeah, Jim, uh, I know I just plugged three men weaving stuff. Where uh, where can the good folks find you online? I'm at Second Chance Points, 2ND Chance Points. That is my Twitter handle. Pretty much the only social media I'm present on. So that would be that would be my recommendation. Nice, yeah. Direct all of your angry tweets to him. Uh, but he will remember them and cite you on a, a later podcast if you are wrong and in his face <laughs> about it. Uh, I, I love very few things. More. I, I, maybe Kai does this a little bit more, but I definitely love when I see uh, some back and forth thing on Reddit and then I see some big win happens months later and I'm like, oh, I bet it's going to come up on the show probably. Yeah, well, it's coming back to bite us. We were chirping about Arkansas for a while, and then now suddenly they've won like 12 of their last 13 games, and we're, we're probably more on the eat crow side. Well, you know, it all, as, as we pointed out, it all evens out in the wash. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, I am uh, Duke Better on Twitter. Uh, you can uh, check out a lot of my Duke stuff there. Again, uh, there's going to be a nice balance of just joking about how other teams suck and a bunch of very reasonable, calm statistical analysis sorts of tweets. So <laughs> if you're into one or both of those things, you should give me a follow there. Presumably already do. If you're listening to the show, uh, Jim, thanks again. Thank you for being the first guest. I didn't think I'd ever have a guest on this show. Happy to do it. I'm, I, I, yeah. I broke your guest cherry. I'm excited. This, yeah, this, <laughs> that's, that's, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> I, that's, I, yeah, I, I'm very, very happy to have uh, somebody to bounce things off of so that I'm not just, sometimes it's very weird just being in your little echo chamber. And oh yeah. I've thought about like people that do like two hour radio shows by themselves. I'm like, it's how, insane. how do you do that? <laughs> it's complete. Like you do after a while start to lose track of like, I mean, maybe maybe the Callan cowards of the world or whatever, like just don't give a shit about things like that. But I do start to worry after like the 40 minute mark of talking by myself, like, is anything I'm saying making any sense whatsoever? Yeah. And I think <laughs> like, I bet I contradicted myself 10 times in this particular yeah. episode. Like that, that would be a risk. And, too. and they'll let you know, too. There, oh, yeah. <laughs> there's there's so much content, but somewhere there is somebody paying attention. I yep. remember I. Uh, I don't think it was your show, although you guys have made a bit of a joke about it in terms of uh, Matt in particular, but one of my early uh, beefs with uh, shows, so it definitely wouldn't have been you because I think you started a little after I was doing my other show, uh, teams that would mispronounce names of players were talking about like players with great authority and then just like bombing the way that a player's name <laughs> is pronounced. And I didn't realize until doing my own show, like, oh, sometimes you just like forget <laughs> because there yeah. are 
thousands of players in NCAA basketball, right. but unless they're like your boys, then, uh, then, you know, what are you going to do? Yep. Uh, Jim, thanks for spending so much time. Much appreciated guys. Go follow second chance points. Um, uh, try to ignore if he tweets any th- anti Duke stuff, uh, you know, just give him, give him a pass, give him a mulligan. He's a good guy. And uh, if you're going to be uh, in Vegas in March, keep your eyes peeled. He'll be there. He'll be the guy uh, tossing the big bucks, baby. Oh yeah. I'll be running around like crazy. <laughs> All right. So for Jim and for myself, Russell, this has been Duke by the numbers. Go to hell, Carolina. What are we doing?